to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and before we get into today's interview, I want to tell all of you about a wonderful event that is happening this Friday, June 2nd at Cartoon Network Studios in Burbank. The Family Service Agency of Burbank is hosting their fifth annual art auction and rooftop dinner, and it's going to feature the artwork from more than 100 artists, and it's going to benefit the Healing Arts at Family Service Agency. And what that is, is they provide therapy for traumatically injured children and enable them to process difficult situations that have been going on in their lives in a safe and healthy way. It's going to be a wonderful event. And like I said, a lot of artists have donated work, including myself and many other people from Nickelodeon and the surrounding studios throughout the area. So if you would like to attend and put in a bid for some excellent art to help out a really great cause, make sure to purchase tickets at www.fsa healingarts.com. The event starts at 5.30 and there are different tiers that you can go to. You can go to the art auction and cheese and wine reception, or you can go to the art auction, cheese and wine reception and rooftop dinner. So again, website is fsahealingarts.com and I'll also have a link for the event in the show notes. And now I am very excited to be bringing you an interview with my friend, Cassie Soliday. Cassie is a true professional in the animation industry. And I know that all of you are going to enjoy the interview today. So without further ado, I present episode 44, interview with Cassie Soliday, part one. My guest today is Cassie Soliday. Cassie is the script coordinator for Disney's Puppy Dog Pals. She's also the newsletter editor for the Animation Network podcast. She's the creator and host of the Ink and Paint Girls podcast, along with the co-creator and co-host of Jammiest Bits of Jam storytelling podcast. And she also has a daily diary comic called Life Scientist, which you can find on Patreon. Cassie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> this is going to be a lot of fun. We've yeah. been wanting to interview each other for a while now. So yeah. now, now you are here, so I get to ask you all the questions. So I always like to start at the beginning. So Cassie, where are you from? I am from Southern Illinois, where the towns are so small, they call them by the county name. Oh, really? So Hardin County is where I'm originally Hardin. from. And so growing up in Illinois, what are some of your earliest memories about animation and comics? Well, comics, I, I didn't find out about only until my 20s. Uh, we lived, or at least I didn't get into them until my 20s, but there weren't any comic book stores around. But animation, we got a TV in the beginning of the 90s, and I watched cartoon cartoons and whatever was on Nickelodeon, but... My earliest memories are probably walking across the gravel road to my grandma's house and after school, and she would let me watch Looney Tunes after school. Oh, that's <laughs> so that a was one. the that was a huge one for me. And reboot, that was a big deal. Oh man, <laughs> I loved reboot. And for everyone out there who may not know reboot, reboot was the first 3D animated television cartoon. And it was awesome. It blew everybody's mind because so cool. you went in the world of a video game and every single episode, the user's game would come into the little world and the video game characters would have to go around and play the game, but also try to defeat this evil bad guy. And it was a really cool show. I liked when they got separated. Yeah, that show, <laughs> that was great. Cool. So going to Grandpa's house, watching Looney Tunes, watching Reboot. So then... What led you down the path of realizing, hey, this is a career that people have. This is something that I could be doing. So when Nightmare Before Christmas came out in theaters, we went and seen it. And that was the first movie when I realized, I mean, it looked just like one guy's style. You know, it was just so different than anything else I had ever seen. And then two years later, one or two years later, I went and seen the Toy Story on Thanksgiving Day opening day. It was really cool. And I sat between my mom and dad with a huge thing of popcorn in my lap. And I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a story from a bunch of toys perspective. 
but in the real world. It was that moment. I don't know how I knew that animation was a job, but that's the movie that started me on the path of, I want to be an animator. Excellent. So then you realize this is a real thing. So then let's fast forward then. You go to college. Where did you go to college? At Columbia College in Chicago. Ooh, very nice. And so I saw from researching here that you were a film and video major with a concentration in animation. So how did the program work? Was it a, a live action program where you could also learn animation or were they two separate tracks? So it was, an, it was like a legit animation program, mm -hmm. but some of the foundational courses were in film. So I feel like a lot of us felt like we were like the, the stepchild. Um, we were one floor down from the film and video department and we didn't have great equipment but the teachers are really good. Yeah, it was interesting, the whole program. I think it's gotten better since <laughs> in terms of equipment, definitely. But also like being their own thing. I think they changed it to cinema, sciences and arts or something like that. that sounds very fancy. Yeah, they're a super fancy school. <laughs> they're very unique. Uh, but what I really appreciate about the, the, that school is that they focus on what you personally have to give and personal experiences. I think it's kind of this it's a cliche that in film school you make these emo films and emo projects, and that was definitely a cliche there, but I feel like they really tried to get what's on the inside out and find your personal style. And what was your emo film or films <laughs> that you created? Well, in my foundational film curriculum, so film one we got to actually shoot on legit film, and kind of like in those old photos of Disney with his nine old men in like a closet, not a closet, but a dark room going uh -huh. through the movieola. We got to do that and like actually edit and cut and tape our films together. And the one I made was about a teddy bear who comes to life and kills people. Oh, wow. Yeah, I like, it was I like the twist. I like the twist because at first you think, oh, it's a teddy bear come to life. Oh, how sweet. It's like, and then it murders everyone. Oh, that's, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> and it was a study in film and light, or not film, but shadow and light. So uh, it was really fun to do because you have to really think about contrast to, to get it to show up on the film and everything. But I had a lot of fun having the bear kill my bear. Like, he wasn't my best friend, but one of my friends. <laughs> I was your friend like, yeah, I got murdered by a bear. Yeah. And he was so much taller than the bear, so it was really funny. <laughs> So but, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, I find dark humor hilarious. So that was pretty much my intro into actually making something that represented the, the humor I found funny. Mm -hmm. We can have a lot of talks about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk later. All right, so did you make a film every year? Or was it more of a thesis This culminated into one film at the end of your time at school? Well, we did have a film at the end of the very last class we did where we were on a team, but it felt like in a lot of the classes, everyone wanted you to make your own film in that class. So like having so many overlapping actual film projects was very overwhelming, I'd have to say. And I did a lot of other, I designed for theater and like did a lot of stage management at the same time, as well as studied at Second City and The Annoyance. So I already had a really full life on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. So all of my projects were real crap. And in retrospect, I wish I would have focused a lot more. Because <laughs> I'm paying that back. So I was like, oh, that's a lesson learned now that I'm out of school. <laughs> that's a common thread that I've heard, not only from you, but other guests and myself as well, this desire to... We want to do everything, but in doing everything, everything kind of comes in at like a median level. And it's not because you don't want to do great work, but it's, but I love all the things. How do I choose? Yeah. I find it really interesting looking back over my experience, how like there were points where I could have chose where to put my energy. Like, okay, if I had three classes and one of them, I felt more passionate about the project getting finished, but the other two projects still needed to be done. I could have put more effort into the one I was more passionate about. So I had a really nice portfolio piece and something to submit to festivals. And the other two could have just been like half of my potential, but you can't be 100% in all three classes. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of how I was feeling, but I also overloaded my workload without actually reading descriptions. Oh no. <laughs> so, like, sure, like, this oh. fun. <laughs> so that's the other thing. Educate yourself over what, what's happening. <laughs> Get an overview <laughs> and kind of make your decisions along the way. Now let's talk about Second City because Second City is famous for the majority of comedy that we are seeing now, you know, Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, mm -hmm. so many amazing people 
have come out of Second City. What was it like studying there and taking classes? Oh, it was amazing because I work studied for everything. So I interned in the administrative office for my classes. And that was like the best opportunity I could have gotten because I was a poor college student. (laughs) But I learned so much. And the coolest thing, I think, is that it's a community of like-minded individuals. I mean, like animation school, of course. But what I like about improv is that it's a yes and mentality and you really have each other's backs. That was the huge difference from like my time at school because we were all like, oh, we're gonna work at Disney. We're gonna work at Pixar. I'm gonna get the job before you. And like no one was saying this, but that was kind of like the feeling in every room. And that second city, it was just like, let's get out there and make a, make a thing out of nothing. And it was just really organic. And I really loved that. And they study all the comedians that have come through previously, you know, and I remember staying back after most of my classes because you could, if you are a student there, you can take your like driver's license and go get like a copy of an old show from their main stage and go watch it somewhere in the center. And so I got to see Tina Fey perform Pinata Full of Bees and like it was a really <laughs> great show and and like all the way back to like I think the 80s. The further back it gets, the worse the recording is. (laughs) So that took a lot of patience to watch, but it was really, it was a real amazing experience. That is fantastic. And so, so you're going to school, you're making these films, you're going to Second City, you're learning about comedy. Then what, what happens next after all of these fantastic experiences? What then led you to go, you know, to California? as opposed to New York or even staying in Chicago and continuing to do more comedy. Oh, for sure. Like after college, I didn't have any job prospects. (laughs) I ended up working at like a terrible job at a call center. Like it was fine. I just didn't like it. Call center. (laughs) I know. know Like it was terrible, but like I didn't like it. Oh, you could say it's terrible. It's fine. (laughs) It gave me bed bugs. Oh God. That's how terrible it was. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That was terrible. It was terrible. (laughs) And that's why I moved to California. No. It's like, I need to live in a place with no vermin. Okay. (laughs) But so I had been applying to the Nickelodeon internship. And the first two times I did not get it, and it was really sad. And third time I applied, because like, what else am I gonna do? Not keep applying? Like, this is something I really want. So I applied a third time. And when I did, because I had gotten the first phone call interview that they do twice. And I'm like, okay, well, my cover letter and my resume are, are seem pretty good. I keep getting calls, but I can't get to the second interview with an actual production because the first one is with a recruiter so I had to figure out do some like introspection for myself why do I want this what would I get out of it what can I bring to the table skill wise you know because they don't look at portfolios they look at you as a person if you're going to school if you're passionate about it and so I did all this research the third time and had questions ready for the team and they actually hired me on the phone call oh wow! so like I don't think they do that often, but I was asking them so many questions. So I had no idea what it looked like. <laughs> so, but anyways, I asked all these like pretty ridiculous questions and they're like talking to themselves and then they offered it. And this is so cool. And I like, I wanted to scream and I didn't. And I had a lot of trouble breathing over the phone. Oh no. <laughs> after they told me and I was like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> They're like, we've killed our future intern. Oh, no. So after we hung up, I was like, I'm really sorry. I got to go. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) I'm sure it didn't happen exactly like that, but that's what I felt like inside. (laughs) So that's what got me to move out here. And that was awesome. (laughs) Cool. So how long was the internship at the time? The internship at the time, because it was spring 2011 when I came out, and it was from January to, I think, May. And there was two options, either three days per week or two days per week, because it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursdays. I don't know if they do that now. I think it's different, because this was when it was unpaid, unfortunately. So had to do a lot of freelance copywriting and like little illustration jobs just to be able to do rent. And of course, a lot of awesome help from my parents. Thank you. (laughs) We're not a rich family at all. Mm -hmm. So that was a very difficult time for all of us. Let me ask you about that, because that's actually something that I feel like it's a little bit less now because now most internships are paid, but not all. Mm -hmm. So how did you find these other freelance and part-time opportunities so that along with your family, you could also intern at Nick? 
Yeah, I did a lot of Craigslist searches and just whatever job sites there were, I would just look through keywords of what my skill levels were. I'm an okay, <laughs> okay copywriter, so I would just apply to all of them. A few weeks ago, I actually was going through my email, deleting a bunch of stuff because I've had my email for a while, and I found all of these emails I would send to Craigslist ads and saw some replies where I would reply back with stars in my eyes going, finally, I got a job, but then they never reply back to me. You know what I mean? So like, it was a lot. That was pretty much daily looking for work. Persistence is the Yeah, key. persistence is really key. <laughs> persistent. All right, so that was good. So what was the internship like? What was the day-to-day for you? Well, they were really accommodating where they're like, get out, meet people, show your portfolio around, get advice and everything. I wanted to be there for my team. I was very intense about my (laughs) internship, which I think went against me in the end. But I saved meeting people mostly for like Tuesdays and Thursdays because those were not my intern days. So I was typically at the studio five days a week. But on the days when I was working, I would consistently ask the production assistants and the coordinators if they needed any help. I think I asked them too much, quite honestly, because they would have to find things for me to do because at the time they couldn't actually have you work on anything for the shows so I did a lot of archiving for assets and I cleaned up the it was a software called portfolio so I tried to like do you Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I would try to get all the keywords so that they were more searchable and then on the server I would try to like organize them a lot better I was on fanboy and chum chum so they were like a cd show and that was interesting because also if you move something out of place it could I think corrupt other files so didn't know that but my now husband was a finaler on that show and he would tell me when I when I did something wrong because he would always have to go and like make sure all the files work before they ship I think I like named something incorrectly once (laughs) oh that's that can happen yeah yeah we we still use portfolio and I can tell you from experience we appreciate all of those keywords because Mm -hmm. that is very helpful when you're going through especially when your show is in multiple seasons and you need a car and you have 50 cars, and you're trying to find, but which one yeah. am I looking for? <laughs> yeah, color is helpful. Mm-hmm. Size is helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so you were on Fanboy and Chum Chums. So that's really cool. Yeah. So you're on Eric's show, uh, Eric Robles, who actually has a new show coming out later next year, I believe. That's so been you... announced, right? Mm-hmm. Glitch Text. Yeah, awesome. they announced it on... Um, believe either on our website and also through Variety. So I'm very excited for that. But (laughs) you got to work on that. You got to work with all the other interns, got to meet people. So then, you know, your internship ends and you didn't get hired full time, which happens to a lot of people, you know, I didn't get hired full time. So how did you deal with that? Because I think that's a side of the story that people need to be aware of. It's not like, oh, if I get this internship, I'm automatically in. It's like, no, you might not. So then how do you how do you deal with that afterwards? Oh, for sure. Dealing with those emotions was hard. And I don't think I actually dealt with them right away. I would ask for feedback. You know, how am I doing? Or is there something I could do better? But everyone's like, you're doing all the right things. But like I said, looking back, I think I can kind of tell where I was like too intense and where I could have like stepped up a little more. But uh, yeah, not getting the internship was really difficult. I went on a lot of interviews, but it was like, my feedback was always, it's just not a good fit. But there's a lot of cool people out there and there's only one position. So like, they have to be very picky and sometimes it's just not a good fit. So it's very interesting. So not getting hired was very, very hard because you always hear about all these intern success stories during the internship. Everyone's like, oh, you're doing great, it'll be fine. But then it ends, and then you're like, now what? I always talk about how, like, in life there's this ladder that we're all trained to climb. You go to college, you get an internship, you get a job, you get married, you have a baby. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where's my job? Yeah. <laughs> like, I was told there'd be a job after this. And, of course, nothing's a promise. But ultimately, I had to make a decision, like, okay, so do I move back to Illinois? Because moving out here, even though it was, you know, essentially temporary, and for a thing that did not pay, I was like, it still it was expensive to move out here. Pack up your life, what little of it fit in my car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I decided to stay out here and really give it a go. Cause like, I was so excited to be at Nickelodeon. Like I was like, wow, I didn't think I'd even make it this far. So every, like, I was like, okay, I've made it. <laughs> Everything's extra, of course. 
that's what you keep telling yourself to make it okay and continue on. But I stayed so that I could pursue that dream. And I got a job at Disneyland. They were the only people who called me back. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard. There's a lot of people out here looking for work in Hollywood and in animation. And so there's a lot of retail jobs that are already full, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that feeling. Because I applied for retail jobs and temp jobs and every basically had the word job it's like I can do this job I can figure it out I just need to pay rent mm-hmm. yeah and I know you understand this because you commuted to where you worked for a while I commuted to Disneyland six days a week mm. because they had like four hour shifts they wouldn't really give people more than that because they want you to be super happy and you know have a great experience for the guests so they would rarely do more than four hour shifts for part-timers so that was really hard on my car (laughs) and on my time stuck in traffic most of the time but ultimately I ended up getting a sketch artisan job down there at Disney California Adventure which was a godsend because then I could work four days a week essentially six to eight hours and for the same amount that I was making in four hour shifts for six days a week so that was awesome and when that happened I had a lot more time to draw and a lot more time to like take workshops and stuff around Burbank because I was commuting from Burbank to down there for a while and something I missed was that so in getting portfolio advice because I came out here hoping to be a 2D animator and that doesn't really exist anymore a lot of 2D animators have gone into storyboarding now because it's essentially key posing because you need to be so detailed and articulate right so I was a little confused over what I wanted to do after that and a lot of the feedback on my portfolio and illustrations was that it's charming and it definitely has kind of a voice developing but ultimately I didn't know how to draw I must have missed that in my classes with foundation and like actually building the structure of the characters and you know when you think about your days when you're just going through the motions and not really retaining anything and by the end of the day you're like oh what did I do today that's kind of what some of my college felt like after getting out here I was like oh I missed a lot so I had to catch up and so that's where workshops came in handy you know to learn like the actual structure learning from people like actively working in the industry it was really really cool because they knew exactly what was going on and what people were looking for and I think the moment when this is long-winded no no go. <laughs> I, I, I like what you're, you're saying because it's you're right because that happened for me and not only for me but a lot of people I knew out of school and it's a It makes sense now, but it's a weird feeling when you hear that after you've been in school for three to five years to hear, but wait, I thought the whole point of going to school was now I know this and you get out and you go, oh no, no, I don't know this yet because then you start meeting people that actually do know how to draw very well or paint well or animate well. And you're right, you realize it is the fundamentals of perspective and color theory and structures of characters and acting and motion and all of that and you're like okay three years is not enough to master anything it's gonna (laughs) take some more time yeah it's like a welcome packet and then you have to really hone in on what you want to do and make Mm -hmm. it a craft I mean I'm still learning all that but like you heard all of these lessons but then there's a point where you hear it again and it clicks Mm -hmm. because you can know something but actually like physically putting pencil to paper and doing it is a whole other thing and so it was actually taking those lessons relearning it and actually doing it again and again until it was just natural and I've always drawn and I've always written but I'm a more natural writer than I am an artist so I have to try like three times as hard as everyone else to draw anything but uh, I feel really proud of where I've gotten from that point (laughs) so that's really good and I think what ended up happening was that once I stopped being desperate to get a job in the industry or to have my stuff look like Bruni Lee or Lorelai Bove it was about what would make me happy right now like what do I want to draw And so my job was drawing all day. We would basically be breaking down these approved character designs from all these Disney properties. So that was a character design lesson, eight hours a day for like three years for me. And so that helped a lot as well. And on my free time, I was already warmed up from eight hours working during the day. So I would draw all night, whatever I wanted. And that's when I really started to find my voice. And I'm still trying to find my voice, but that was like the beginning. 
what kind of stories do you want to tell? What were some of the things that you realized, oh, this is the kind of story that I want to get out there? I definitely like stories about underdogs and imaginary friends. (laughs) And basically all that anxiety and nervousness inside of you within a story, dealing with your own demons. Because I think those are the strongest villains or is your like self. (laughs) So most of the stuff that I've been like working on, especially lately, has been has been that and also dealing with the unknown because like one thing that you did my bio at the beginning of this I do a lot of things and one thing that and that's actually like the clean version (laughs) you know what I mean that's like the more specific version so the thing that I get I'm so like curious about life and so excited life is so cool like anything you want to do you could ultimately do you know a lot of it's going to take a lot of hard work because that's the cool things out there But, like, you could do anything, and to choose one thing for your entire life, (laughs) what if I choose wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? But ultimately, with storytelling, you can write about other lives, you can research to make your stories full. So I'm not a scientist, but I am really interested in the science of the world because like why is it this way why is the sky blue and you could research that and put it into like a character description you know or like into your story and that's really amazing and and that's why I've been drawn to storytelling is because you can wrap all of life into like projects right that makes a lot of sense and that's really cool and I hear that a lot from actors too of I can be an astronaut I can be a senator. I can save the world. I can do all these things because I'm doing these things in the movie. And it's the same with storytelling. You can tell a story about anything Mm -hmm. and any character, and you can infuse them with things you've learned and what you've seen from other people. Yeah. You're so eloquent. (laughs) I need to gain that. I'm just like everything, anything. (laughs) All the things, all the things. Well, thank you. But I love your story because I love it because you didn't quit. Because that's the thing. I know people from school that they quit right after they graduated. After they graduated, they saw, oh, this is hard, and they haven't done anything with animation since. And I feel like, no, you haven't even gotten started yet. School is not even the starting point. The starting point is, okay, now that you're done with school, now what are you going to do? Are you going to keep taking classes? Are you going to talk to people? Are you going to meet people? Are you going to move to where you need to go? And then when things don't work, are you going to quit? Because life is really difficult for everyone. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's harder for some people than others, but it's just hard. So don't, you can't just quit just because, oh, I applied to 20 places I didn't get in. And you don't know what the 25th or 30th or 80th place is going to say. You can't quit so soon. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I know people like that too. And I know I think about this a lot because I'm like, what if I'd given up? Because I think about stuff that's not important a lot mm-hmm. Oh, I <laughs> to me, you, you know, <laughs> but it, it, it's definitely an important thing where like, yeah, I mean, kind of like that ladder I mentioned earlier, like up until the end of college, you've been told what to do basically, right? So like making your own decisions isn't completely natural for some people, you know? So like when that next step isn't presented to you, then you just kind of keep waiting for it to present itself to you. But it's not going to come if you're not working for it or putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people give that advice, put yourself out there. But it's like, how? (laughs) Like, how? Because if you're screaming into a void posting online and stuff. But, like, eventually, for a lot of people that we both know, someone calls back. But you have to keep sending out those signals. And you have to keep making things. And something I've heard from... Oatley and Laura Innes and oh, I love them I like them too they're very <laughs> nice people and on their podcasts they're always talking about making your own projects and I've heard this from so many people and it's true from personal experience it is true make your own project make your own thing people I've met that have made their own thing they've gotten jobs from making their own stuff either jobs at a studio or that thing eventually becomes their job and they don't need to do a studio job because they can just support themselves off of whatever it was they created over time it wasn't like oh they did it once and now they're rich it's like no they did it once and then they made three more Mm -hmm. or eight more and were able to sustain themselves 
Well, especially if you think of yourself as a company. I mean, these companies we work for, they have they have intellectual properties, commonly known as IP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just keep making things. They hire people to make things. So the reason all these characters are so beloved is that they have huge teams pushing it out there. And that's what's hard about making your own stuff is that you are the entire company. You are everyone. You're the you're the promotions person. You're like the animator. You're the writer. You're everything. But that's when you get to make the stuff that really matters to you. Because I think that was the kind of shocker to me getting into the industry and like there's a lot of cool things being made don't get me wrong but there's sometimes you have to work on something where you're like oh someone (laughs) trumped that idea that I just pitched or something and then you're like I'm a little less satisfied although it's a fine idea because you always want to feel like you're heard and you always want to contribute to the process and you're not always 100% yay about someone else's. And I'm sounding like a jerk right now, oh, but know. I hope it's coming off like... because no, like, I don't think you're sounding like a jerk either because I have friends that... This hasn't happened yet because I've thus far I've only worked on one animated show and I happen to really like my show. Mm-hmm. But I have friends that have worked on shows and you have friends that have worked on shows where they're very happy to have a job mm-hmm. and to be with their friends and to pay their rent and feed their families, they hate that show. It is not a good show. And that's going to happen. Not everything that gets made in the industry is gold. Sometimes it's less than that. As my art teacher once said, you have to take this piece of poo, which is not the word he used, and you have to shine it up so it's the prettiest piece of poo that anyone's ever seen. And you just have to do that yeah. sometimes. Was that Scotland Burns? No, that was uh, <laughs> actually it was uh, Tom Brutino, the director of our animation, the 3D animation program at my school in a lecture. He was like, look, all of you guys are going to get on a show that sucks. He just mm. flat out, because worked, he worked in the industry for 17 years before he came to the academy, and he had worked on some dogs of a show. Like, he'd worked on some bad shows. And he just said, look, you're going to get a show you don't like. Mm-hmm. Your job is to do the best you can and to make it, make your part of that show the best that anyone's ever seen so that people will look at it and go, wow, that show's terrible, but that one part wasn't so terrible. If they can do all of that with this, think of what they could do on something that's actually good. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to people where that's what happened. They were on something that was bad. They did the best job they could, and then they eventually got to be on something really awesome. There's just so many hands in the pot, ultimately, you know, and I think if someone designs this amazing character design, but then, you know, gives it to, like, a cleanup artist and he misinterprets some shape and it's, oh, that's a little wonky, and then you give it to a color stylist and they misinterpret, you know, a legging for skin color and, like, the shorts look weird now. You don't follow it through. It's so compartmentalized. So it's never what you imagine it by the end. And I'm sure I've heard writers feel that way where the script changes so much. Uh-huh. Uh, It's just an interesting, interesting process, but ultimately everyone has their own story that they want to tell. We're all creative. We all have stories to tell. And I know a few people who've been working in the industry a while and I'll ask them like, what are you working on at home? Because I'm always excited to see what people Mm -hmm. are working on, right? They're like, oh, when I retire, I'll work on my own. No, no, I know. Don't don't wait till you retire. You'll be too tired, man. Yeah. Because you're not going to retire till you're in your 60s. Like, don't wait till your 60s. Everyone has their own way they want to live life, and that's fine. I just, I get sad when I hear that, because I'm like, but you have a painting in you right now, <laughs> you know? I just think, so you're telling me i got to wait 30, no, I'm not going to wait 30 years. Yeah. No way, man. I mean, people are, like, retiring older and older, and in our industry, to be employed 100% of your career, that's amazing, uh-huh. you know? I would love that, because I see retirement as... I mean, I get bored really easily as it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that retirement for me would just be a quick and painful death. Because it would just be like, oh, you're retired. Wait, no. What do you mean I don't have to do anything? I'm just supposed to sit at home. It's like, ugh. Yeah. That, that sounds miserable. I think for people like <laughs> you and me, we would be like the Miyazaki where, like, we're retired, we're out. And then, like, two minutes later, we'd be like, oh, I have this really cool idea. Can yeah. we make it? I'm just not going <laughs> to say I've retired. It's like, no, I'm just not going to. I'm taking a sabbatical. I'll die with a pencil in my hand. (laughs) Just find me at a desk. All right. That's the way to go. But so you were a sketch artist, and you did that for three years. For three three years, years, you were doing this and drawing. And 
Was it that you were showing people how to draw, or were you doing um, like, I was, commissions? Like, what was We were that? doing the commissions, so okay. I was part of the team in the gift shop area. Mm-hmm. I've never called it a gift shop till today. I always hate it when people say that, because I'm like, we are a fine art store. Thank you very much. So we were in there, and we got to work on these legit Disney animation desks. It's really cool being in that position because a lot of old Disney animators would walk through and like comment on the desk, and of course they thought we were shit and <laughs> shit drawers. Oh, no, 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 they were really like, nice. On, they were really man. nice. They were actually the only one of the few <laughs> groups of people who understood because ultimately we worked from already established designs. I mean, it's Disney. You know, we have to be able to do this stuff quickly. There's a lot of people that go through Disney parks, so we have to work. It was kind of like cleanup, right? We had a finished design, and then we put our animation paper over it and then we break it down into the shapes that's in build it up back into the finished drawing that is behind it so it looked like we were tracing basically all the time and that was what people told us all the time and it was emotionally hard to take but ultimately that's what a cleanup artist does but it was really invaluable to my experience and I I'm also one of those people that wish I was like born in a different generation so I could have been like an ink and paint girl or like like in-betweener that would have been amazing that's kind of how I thought my life was gonna go I'm gonna be a a cleanup animator and then I'm gonna be an assistant and an in-betweener and then I'm gonna be an animator you know you thought your life would be like the 80s (laughs) exactly that's exactly what I thought I thought I'd (laughs) I think that's what all of us think until we get to school because I that's what I thought too. I thought that through school (laughs) I thought that until I got to school because that's why I switched to boarding what you were talking about earlier because I grew up watching Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast Mm -hmm. and the Lion King and rescuers down under you know seeing that and going oh i'm gonna do that and then getting to school then realize wait all 2d animation is done in asia and canada oh do i want to move to asia or canada Mm, not necessarily i'd kind of rather stay here what else could i do storyboarding okay (laughs) let's do that see i wouldn't mind i think about that all the time i wouldn't mind moving somewhere else to be able to animate I think about that. I oh. want to work in Ireland, so if anyone oh, that'd knows, be cool. anyone knows Ireland. the guys at Cartoon Saloon, be like, call "Hey, me. give Cassie a call. She is waiting for you." But the thing about that, though, because like I'm like, I would move and animate wherever, but like I haven't animated since college. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, even if an opportunity came up, I'm not prepared for it. I've abandoned that a little bit. <laughs> I'm working on an idea that I'm going to animate a little short film project, but uh-huh. it's like in the very baby stages right now. But like, I miss it because I thought animation is so amazing. You're acting through a pencil and you're infusing like emotions into a flippin' drawing. It's not real. No, and but it's it hard. But it touches you on such a deep level yeah. when you see it done well. This is true because I think about how animated movies make you cry the way that real life I said in quotes Mm -hmm. it's different there's something very visceral about crying in an animated movie versus crying in a live-action movie I don't cry in live-action movies very often I mean it has to be really gut-wrenching but you put on Lion King or anything Pixar does because they're determined just to break your soul, yeah. you know? And you're just like, ah, how could this be happening to this poor inanimate object or baby or old man or baby lion or whatnot? And you're just reduced to a puddle of mush. I think about that a lot because in animation, every detail on the screen is poured over, right? It's so intentional. So the images that they're showing you is in a certain, in a specific sequence, exactly to kind of hit your heart that way. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And also, I think there's the added level of, in a lot of ways, I feel like animated movies are made better than live action movies because they take so much longer and they're so expensive. And going into it, you, you know you know it's not real because it's an animated movie. You know this is not a real thing. So it has to be, the stories have to be that much tighter just to get over that initial hurdle of we have to make you believe that an elephant can fly, that a bug can save his little ant kingdom, that a little boy and a robot can become friends. You have to overcome that. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot. That is a logic leap. And you have to take that leap and then you have to sustain it through for the next hour and a half. 
So mm-hmm. I feel like with animated movies, when you finally do cry, the animators, they have earned that moment. You gotta totally. earn that moment. In live action, you know, I've seen tons of live action movies where someone dies and the people are so upset and you're watching it going, I don't care though, because I don't care about this person. I don't care about this event. And yeah, they're, your friend's dead, that stinks. But it doesn't pull at you because they haven't earned that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm thinking about death. <laughs> <laughs> now we're thinking, now we're pondering uh. death. Let's let's talk back though about so your sketch art. So then, how do you go from Disneyland being a sketch artist, working really hard, going home? You're doing this six days a week mm-hmm. for three years. That is impressive. How do you go from that to then? getting your foot in the door at a studio. Oh yeah, well, the interviews continued happening. That was one of the amazing things about the internship is that you meet enough people and you keep up with them. And if they're just like, hey, I'm still looking for a PA job, please keep me in mind when you're looking. And I didn't do that often, but I would do it every six months friendly. And I would try to meet up with people and just have coffee to keep up with them personally. Because that's another thing. It's like, how do I network, but not sleazily, Mm -hmm. you know, with an agenda. Because, like, there's a lot of amazing people in animation, and I genuinely want to know everything they're doing. Yeah. (laughs) But I know it probably feels that, oh, I just want a job, I just want a job. And when I stopped kind of, like, judging myself and being worried that that's what everyone felt, a lot of friendships developed out of that. So I stopped being like, I need a job, because they know. You know? Yeah. So that was good. And I was always afraid to say it that bluntly, too. <laughs> but, uh, I need a job. Help I need me. a job. Hi. <laughs> How's it been? I need a job, please. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. I'm just going to go get my coffee and I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so many meetings at Starbucks specifically. Yeah. So one of my uh, friends from college, she used to work at Nickelodeon and she had went to Disney. That's another cool thing about the industry is that people move around. So when she was at Disney, her producer was leaving to go produce a feature at Universal. It was the Land Before Time 14. So she was looking for PAs. And since my friend and I, you know, we were keeping up with each other quite a bit and she knew I was still looking. So she had sent my resume and cover letter to her producer before she went off to do that. And I got an interview and I was actually really psyched because Land Before Time was one of my favorites. I have a lot of childhood favorites, but that was one of them. That's a solid movie. Yeah. So I got this interview and I felt like, I was super nervous, but I felt like I did a good job. I, I was like, I'm not, I wasn't crazy. <laughs> That's good. But ultimately, she didn't hire me. And I actually got the phone call driving, because at that time, I act, had actually moved to Orange County, because it didn't look like I was going to ever get a job in animation. So I was like, I'll just move closer, because it's expensive to commute. And she called me and left a message on my phone, because like I was driving, so I'm not going to answer my phone. And she left me this really nice message saying that she just felt that I was overqualified to be a PA and that she would be not hiring me. And I was so sad and I cried. I'm about to cry right now just remembering it. It's like, okay, well, I am not a good fit for like everything. And then I'm overqualified for an entry level job for which I've only had an internship for. And I personally feel like my stage management background in theater and, you know, working PA on live action shoots in Chicago is helpful for that experience, but not every producer agrees with that. So it was finally nice to like, meet someone who felt like I had the experience to be a coordinator, you know, but she didn't need a coordinator. But a few months later, she had actually given my resume to someone else in the building and that producer called me to interview for a production coordinator position on Fresh Beat Band of Spies, which was this partnership between Nick Jr. and uh, 6.2. And that was really exciting. I was like, oh my God, someone thought of me and passed my information around. And like, when you get in the industry, you realize that happens a lot, but that hadn't happened for me <laughs> so until that point. So I was like, ah! <laughs> And it was really exciting, and they took their time interviewing people, so that was a really hard two weeks. I was like, ah, I'm dying. <laughs> but waiting for any kind of callback for any kind of job interview, that's kind of what it feels like. But I got the job, 
and it was really amazing. I basically had to listen to the associate producer, who's now my friend, talk and talk and talk about the show. And I thought I, re- I thought I did not get it. I was like, wow, she's talking a lot. <laughs> like I answered, I feel like two questions, <laughs> and she just talked at me. And well, she talk- spoke to me. She was really nice. She's a really amazing person, but. Yeah, I did not think I got that one. <laughs> and I did, and it was awesome. And that's actually where I met a lot of people that I work with now as well. Because afterwards I went to Disney to work on the 7D, and then I got hired at Wild Canary where that producer was, as well as the art director and a few other people. So it's kind of cool how even though I've moved on to different shows, I've gotten to work with a few people, like little cul-de-sacs of people from each one. So at this point, how many shows have you worked on? I've worked on three shows now. And so what is it like going from one show to another show? What is that transition period like getting used to the crew and the team and how everything works? I feel like the job isn't that different. I mean, there's the shows are they work differently. They're set up, organized differently. And sometimes they're not organized. That role that you come into isn't organized and then you have to make it what you want. And I think that's pretty cool because at first I was... Because, like, on Fresh Beat Band, I was kind of there to do overflow. So it was, like, an undefined role. They had a coordinator and a design supervisor who worked on all the designs. But I came in to kind of do post-animatic designs because they hadn't thought that that would be a thing. Because people make these schedules to be able to be like, oh, we can do it in this time. But you don't actually think, and I'm sure they do think about the logistics, but it's just hard to get the money to do something. So you just ignore it. So all the designs were done, but the storyboard artists in Canada had created different assets to make the board work. Other props that they needed to use. And so we didn't have the, because we did a lot of freelance artists, so... They were all working on pre-production stuff. But yet we had all these assets that needed designed after the fact. Why were they not designed beforehand? Because they didn't exist in the story or in the script. Because like you get a script, mm-hmm. the start of the pipeline, and you, the design people, they break it down. We need this many character designs. We need this many backgrounds. We need this many props. Oh, and then so they're given they to the storyboard. Oh, so they, oh, okay. Yeah, so they design everything at pre our shows are reversed. So mm-hmm. we do the script, and then they do the storyboard, and then they design the assets based off of that. But also, because we're in season three now, the board artists have a portfolio of assets to choose from. Mm-hmm. So they're picking background designs and props that already exist if we have them. So first they pick stuff that already exists, and then if it's something that doesn't exist, or if it's an angle that they don't have, then they'll draw it. So that's why I was asking about it, because I was thinking, well, why is it that they're having to design other things? But if they're not doing that, if they're designing and then boarding, wow, that's a lot of extra work. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And yeah. that's not... Is that how most shows are? I Design don't know. and then boards? I think, I don't know, I think it depends. I mean, storyboard-driven shows typically seems like they do like very new designs like Mm -hmm. in the beginning just as kind of a style guide like this is where things could happen but it's only like one view of it Uh and then if a storyboard artist because on 7d that's what we did there was just key items done at the very start and then the storyboard artist would use that and like storyboard everything and then afterwards if there was a reverse shot of something the background that was designed in pre then like the designer would do it if there's like we needed a three-quarter back for like an incidental character, then the designer would do it because we can't have all of our designers doing all these views and all these turns if they're not going to get used in the board. Right. Yeah, because it's really interesting because if you have a successfully run show like, and organized, then why wouldn't you just use that across the industry? And right. I think that happens a little bit with people going to show to show. But I think the differences are based on, like, the people. Because there's some people like, that's stupid. We can't do it like that. This We should do it this way. And then, you know, that's when like, production managers have to step in and be like, okay, well, let's have a compromise. Yeah. And then you have a whole new way of doing it. Yeah. I think it also know. depends, too, just on really basic stuff, too. Like, what software are you using to track everything? Because mm-hmm. that can be different. You totally. know, what software are you using to track everything? What software are you using to, sh- you know, store everything? Is it a CG show? Is it a 2D show? Is the creator of a show someone who's worked on other shows? Because mm. if they've never worked on another show, they're not going to know what the standard is because 
they have no standard other than mm -hmm. what their producer or executives are telling them. And if their executives aren't necessarily telling them, hey, run it this way, they're gonna be like, all right, I think it should go something like this based off of what we did in school or what I read in a book. And yeah. that could be its own special thing as we've all heard stories about that. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, it really is a mixture of factors. Yeah, because even here, all the shows are run differently, which I didn't know coming yeah. into Nick. I thought, oh, it's Nick. It'll be like Pixar, everything. Yeah. And, but even Pixar's stuff is run differently on every movie. It just depends on who's doing the running of it. Uh -huh. I would love to work in feature someday because my question is, how do you schedule scrapping a whole movie, like with The Good Dinosaur? How do you schedule for that? It blows my mind. I want to know. Yeah, that <laughs> happened before I got there, so I don't even know. And I was in development, so uh -huh. I wasn't working on any movies that had been greenlit. So, and that was an interesting experience because you go to these meetings and you go to these pitch sessions and you're reading this stuff and you're just like, this looks like a movie to me, but it may not become a movie, but you're looking at it going, looks like a movie, smells like a movie, <laughs> it's got a three act structure, it's got a good director, got a good writer. What could possibly go wrong? But I'll find out in five years if anything we worked on actually goes yeah. through. So who knows? You know, I mean, all I know with Dino is that it wasn't working. The story wasn't working. They realized it wasn't working. So they scrapped it for a while, retooled it, brought people back in, put a new direct, you know, put Pete in, who'd been the assistant director, made him the full time director, and then off it went. Yeah. But how they decided that? how they decided how to organize it, you'd have to ask them. Yeah. And I did not know them well enough to ask them at <laughs> <all> the time. <laughs> That'd be like something I'd ask in an elevator, just like well, if I ever inappropriately. Saw them in, yeah, no, I mean, I would see them in the hall, but it's like, well, that's, this is not the time to be asking. It's like, hey, Pete, how did you? No, no, no. Oh, man. Let, let them be. <laughs> They've see, got stuff to do. <laughs> I have, like, conversations in my head where I'm like, it's inappropriate, but I may never meet this person ever again. I don't know. It's yeah. a case-by-case -case basis. I, I think so, because I've asked other people stuff, but usually I've asked people stuff like that when I haven't been at work. Mm -hmm. You know, if I see them at a party or something, because then it's like, hey, we're all hanging out. We're having a good time. We kind of got to know each other at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. but let's. I can ask you some questions now. This is, you know, purely like, this is off the record. I'm just very curious. Can you tell me more about this? And then I find, especially with animation people, Animation people like to talk, and they like to drink. So then it's like, now I'll tell you everything. What do you want to know? And it's like, oh, oh my, okay. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so the way to do it I've right heard a there. lot of stories about a lot of things that I can't ever repeat. Oh, so man. It's just like, hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should take you out for a drink. You should take me out for a drink, and we'll have a conversation. But, but yeah, all right, so... Basically, so just every show is different and everything's run different. And you have, at this point now, you've had a lot, you've worn a lot of different hats because you have been a production coordinator, you've been a storyboard and animatic coordinator, and you've been a script coordinator. So I wanted to know, what are the differences between all three of those? What specifically are you doing in each of those roles? Well, in my experience, because again, like coordinators do, they kind of do different things on different shows, it seems like. But my first show as a production coordinator, I was just the catch-all for whatever. If it wasn't your job, it was my job, basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Things that they didn't plan for. So it had like no structure except for what I brought to it. And that was very difficult, <laughs> not having had like an animation production job before not, that wasn't an internship but when I got to Disney it was hyper structured because my college friend was the production manager which she had been the coordinator and she got bumped up she had given my resume to her producer and luckily he liked me <laughs> and that's how I got hired but it was definitely on her recommendation as well but she is an amazing production manager amazing production person overall she is amazing. She's been on the artist side as a color stylist for like Nick Jr. shows and at Disney too, but she loves production. And I don't know if I've met anyone more passionate about scheduling stuff and like organizing files, <laughs> but like she makes it fun. And she's actually why I found a love for production. Cause for a while I was like, this isn't the goal. This isn't the plan. I want to get out of here. 
But ultimately, so she had a very structured show. And being a production coordinator there, so what we did, it was me and this and this other coordinator, we split the shows. So we had 25 half-hour episodes, which was 50, 11 minutes. And then basically he had one 11-minute, I had the other 11-minute. And then he had one 11-minute and I had the other one. So every single episode we basically split in half. So we would get the script and we would follow that all the way into animation. So that's going through design, making sure you get all the designs in for the storyboard artists, that the storyboard artists start on time, that they have everything they need and you assist them. If they're like, I need this random design and it obviously isn't gonna be in your schedule. So you just kind of have to look at your designers when you have them and be like, okay, can you fit this in this Mm -hmm. week? Cause the storyboard artist could use that design, you know? And that's not ideal because you wanna work on a schedule so that things get done and that everyone has enough time to meet their own deadlines without getting extra work. But there were some organic things that would come up like that, that you just kind of have to maneuver. So it's just knowing your entire episode inside and out and following all everything in the script all the way through, knowing what gets cut, why it got cut, because there'll be like these meetings like, what happened to this thing? Even though the director makes the decision to cut something, They'll be like somewhere down the line, be like, whatever happened to that? Like, why did we, what, where is it? Where is it? Why didn't it, like, why didn't you export that from Storyboard Pro? And then you're like, but you, you said to cut it, you know? And like, I don't go and manually cut anything, but like, that's what he said. So that's what you tell the storyboard artist or the revisionist. And It's amazing how many times that happens, but ultimately everyone's working on more than one show. The directors are working on like 14 plus shows. The designers are working like on one show every single week with some overlapping whenever we go and ask for like, oh, I know you're working on designs for this new episode, but I need you to work on post-animatic designs for an episode that was 15 weeks ago, you know? And so everyone has so much on their plate that that would happen a lot. And it was very frustrating until I realized, you know what? I'm working on 14 plus shows. He's working on 14 plus shows. So it's very interesting. I think the hardest part is learning everyone's communication style, but also accepting that, okay, just because he's upset right now that something got cut earlier in the show, it's not my fault. But I also don't need to tell him that he's the one who cut it. So it's not taking things personal, right? You just kind of have to let it hit you and, and fall off. It's a creative process and you can't tame it. It's a beast. And you just kind of got to go with the flow and be like, you're right. Let me go look through Storyboard Pro projects and I'll find that one scene that somehow cut. I'm so sorry. I'll be right back. I say I'm sorry too much too. <laughs> but like, <laughs> But I feel like as a lady I feel like you hear that women say I'm sorry too much and I definitely say I'm sorry too much even if it's not my fault just because I feel like let's just get past this I'm gonna let you know I'm sorry so you stop guilting me because that's what it feels like so we can move on um and that sometimes helps but I should not do that and I should be more powerful and like you're right I'll go do it I can say though from the opposite end I don't always say I'm sorry enough and I sometimes tend to be more argumentative that's not always helpful. Hmm. So it's not like the other side is the better side sometimes. I think there's somewhere in the middle of not saying you're sorry, but also not feeling, and now I must fight. Like mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be these polar opposites. It can be somewhere of, this did happen. Let us now fix it mm-hmm. without no, I'm now going to fight for my side, or, oh, I'm sorry I did that, when it's not your fault. There needs to be some other thing. Yeah, totally. And I definitely feel like learning how to read the people in the room or the person you're interacting with is a huge part of that. But, I mean, there's so many emotions flying around on an animation, any kind of production, like, there's a lot of egos out there. There's a lot of very humble people as well. Like a lot of people are just like, I'm just excited to be here, which is amazing, right? A lot of great creative energy, but there's also a lot of uh, insecurities. And the way some people kind of, it seems like, obviously, I don't know. I've never asked anyone because like, what are you going to do? You seemed really insecure in that meeting. Can we talk about this right now? <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray 
pry you open and see yeah. tick. What? <laughs> I wish conversations could work like that, but they don't. They can kind of with your friends sometimes. Yeah, but you have to be a really good friend. Yeah, Eric Holman's not going to react to me very well if I do that. <laughs> like, what makes you insecure, man, who has to go talk to Walt Disney's, you know, grandchildren right now or something? Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. So cool. But anyways... Yeah, a lot of people process their emotions differently, and some people never, never quite learn how to some manage. Some people don't process their emotions. That's some true. Just, you know, you just take those emotions, you just tamp them deep inside where no one can see, and it's like that's also not helpful. Yeah, I mean, in in something I learned in being in like a long term relationship with my husband, and everything is that sometimes you just have to let people feel what they're feeling, and just kind of be witness to it, or like make space for them to have their tantrum, and then. Be like, that happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, That's just, good to know. I'm yeah. going to file that away for future use. Just, like, just let it happen. <laughs> I don't know. I've just been in some situations at work where people are just, they're so passionate and they want to make such a great, beautiful show. And they're so micro-focused on, like, a design. But ultimately, you have to let go. And it has to go has to leave, has to go fly the coop and be animated over in, like, China or wherever. <laughs> and I totally get it. If you're an artist working on these shows, I mean, even in production, you want it to be the most beautiful thing ever. You want it to be the funniest thing ever. But there's other shows that need to be made, and you need to move on. And ultimately, it's never going to be the perfect package that you envisioned because there's so many hands in that pot. But... I've seen a few people have many breakdowns over just wanting a little bit more time on their deadlines and stuff. And you never know what's going on in their personal life either. And that's the other hard thing because a lot of people are like machines. They're like, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got to do this. I got to do this. Oh, God. It's like, this is hard. This is kind of hard. I need more time. Just like, let me have more time. And then like the next day, like, can we pretend that didn't happen? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so like in production, it's especially important to just be like shield yourself a little bit. I feel like sometimes you see your team, because in production, I feel like you kind of... People say that productions are like families, right? I've heard that a lot. You know, and I think it's interesting because I've heard people be like, that's not a healthy way of looking at it. It's a job. But then when you get that family feel, that warm feeling where you're excited to come to work and excited to work on this project with people, I feel like that's when the show is best. Yes, it's a job, and you shouldn't remember that, but, like, you can love the people you're working with. So I feel like having... A little bit, a little bit of knowledge about the people you're working with, at least a little. You can be there for them and enable them to do their better work. Because, like, if someone believes in you, let's say, I believe in you. I genuinely believe in you. I don't know why, let's say, like, I do. You're going to do better work. You know, you're like, oh, I'm excited to do this. I'm going to, like, do so well that she's going to be like, this is amazing. Because also when you're drawing for these shows, you're just kind of in this cubicle working away. And not often do you get, oh, yeah, good job on that. Because everyone's so focused on moving to the next thing, you know, because we have a schedule to meet, we have deadlines to meet. So you're just working away. And you're also not going to see your show for months. Yeah. And months. So, yeah, <laughs> so, you did a good job. But yes. You're not going to actually get to see it in motion for, like, six months from now. Exactly. So I feel like no matter what kind of production position it is it's being a cheerleader for your team i know i kind of got really side sweeped here on the production corner in like no but i want to hear about that because i feel like and chris has talked about this and you've talked about this on your show production is often the mysterious realm for people who are just starting off their careers in animation because at most schools it's not a focus and a lot of schools don't even talk about it at all I was fortunate in that I had a production job while I was in school, and even though it wasn't an animation, I knew what production was Mm -hmm. because I was doing that while I was in school, and then I was doing that when I immediately got out of school. But a lot of schools, they don't have classes on it. They don't talk about that. No one knows still what a producer does, what a production coordinator does, what a PA actually does, what any of these people do. All you hear is the art side, and then you get into your animation job, especially if you're in art, and you're just like, well, there's what I do, but what are those people doing over there? I don't even know. But they're telling me I have to get it done, but what's happening? And so it's good for people to know. For sure. There's a bigger 
there is more going on than what you see. They're having to run the entire show. You're doing your part, but you need to know how your part fits Mm -hmm. so that everyone else around you can also do your job or their job because it's not just about you. I think that's where people get stuck is, Mm -hmm. I need more time. You can't have more time, and here's why. If you get more time, other people don't get the time they need, and then everything goes off the rails. Yeah, and post-production gets hit hard. Oh, yeah, and then post-production is going to hate you because (laughs) they're the last stop, and they don't have a choice. They have no wiggle room. Mm -hmm. They're, like, right up to, like, air date sometimes. Yeah, so don't don't do that to them. Yeah. They need their time. I know there's a better, clear summary for what production does, but I think the best summary I ever heard was at a women in animation meeting where this producer said basically I tell creatives how much time they have to be creative and I was like dang that like summarizes it and it sucks but it's also like well you want to make things right the way they get money to hire you to make something is that they give a schedule and they have a budget they have to pay you daily weekly monthly to get the work done right they need to stick to that schedule or else they're not going to be able to get another show or movie after this one's done to hire you again, you know? And learning all that stuff, it's like, whoa. And that concludes part one of my interview with Cassie Soliday. Special thanks to Cassie for being a wonderful guest. And make sure to check out the show notes where you can find all of Cassie's websites, including her Patreon account, as well as both of her podcasts, the Ink and Paint Girls podcast and Jammiest Bits of Jam, which you can find on iTunes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal donation button and leaving a donation. All of your donations help me to keep the show up and running And thank you so much to everyone who has donated thus far. I really appreciate it. And also make sure to support our affiliate sponsors, Loot Crate, Amazon.com, Audible, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. When you click on those banner ads on the website and make your regularly scheduled purchases, a little bit of money comes back to the show. And that also helps me with technical costs. So make sure to support all of our sponsors They appreciate it, and I appreciate it also. And if you want to know what else is going on in the wonderful world of animation, make sure to check out The Animated Journey throughout all of social media. On Facebook, that address is facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, it's theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can find it at animjourney. And to see what I've been up to lately, you can check out my website, www.sketchysoul.com. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash sketchysoul. On Tumblr, it's sketchysoul.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, the handle is at sketchysoul. So thank you to everyone for listening. And make sure to tune in next week for part two of my interview with Cassie. Until then, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody. 